Chapter 18 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 Return to Buenos Aires. We stayed about a week in Tucumán and its neighborhood, and then returned by rail and steamer to Buenos Aires. As we had to traverse five provinces on this journey, each having a different paper currency, we provided ourselves with a load of Chilean and Peruvian silver dollars, souls as they are called, which are everywhere taken for 82 cents gold. From Tucumán to Cordoba, we were carried by the government railway, and the evils of its administration were everywhere apparent. It compared very unfavorably with the other railway companies of the Republic under the management of Englishmen. A railway accident is the ordinary incident of travel on this line, for it is now so rotten and dilapidated that the trains run off the metals two or three times a week, notwithstanding that there are no curves on the way, the rails being carried in one perfectly straight line across the level plains. However, passengers are but rarely injured by these accidents, for there are no high banks for the train to roll over. They even managed to get up a collision occasionally, an ingenious and extraordinary feat, requiring some calculation to bring it about. Seeing that one train only starts every other day from either terminus, and the rate of progress is so slow that it is almost possible to see the other train approaching when it is still half a day's journey off across the plain. Of course, we had our little accident. We ran off the line and took a trip into the Salinas till we were brought up and, after some hours' delay, put on the rails again. We were advised to carry a sufficiency of provisions with us, so we victualled our carriage with a demijohn of Mendoza wine, some cold fowls, and other luxuries, and made ourselves very comfortable during the two days' tedious journey to Cordoba. The stoppages were frequent. We passed half a night at a place called Recreo, for what object I know not, save it be for the purpose of putting money into the pockets of the exorbitant proprietor of a buffet that is there. We were continually halting at other little unnecessary stations in the salt desert, where there were no villages, no goods or passengers to be discharged or taken up, nothing indeed but a station master, sand, salt, and cacti. The delay at each of these stations was enormous. The engine driver and guard of our train would get out at each, light up their cigarettes, and look dreamily across the burning desert for half an hour or so, as if in search of some impossible passengers that were coming up from the far horizon. Had we anticipated these delays, we would have brought an ox with us and made Manuel get out and cook us an asado on each platform as we traveled along. As might be expected, we took up no passengers at the stations on the Salinas. At some of the other stations, we did. Then there was a double or treble delay, but this was not surprising to me after the following experience at the station of Tucumán. I had found out that our united fares amounted to $75 gold, so before presenting myself at the ticket office, I had calculated what this would be in souls at 82 I counted out the proper number and presented them to the ticket clerk. But to him, this calculation was a very serious matter and not to be hurried over. 
So he called me into his office separately, keeping all the other passengers waiting, and said solemnly, Come, senor, let us calculate this, at the same time producing a large sheet of fool's cap, a pen, and a horn of powder. So we calculated. He was not what one would call a ready mathematician. Over and over again he attacked the difficult problem, irritated, perplexed, impatient, yet ever polite. At each attempt he brought out a different sum. I worked it out for him, but he utterly despised my result. I had arrived at it too quickly with too few figures. I could not be right. It was not such a simple matter as all that. At last, some new way of reckoning, an inspiration of genius, flashed across his brain, and after covering another sheet of paper with a row of five-barred gates with a lot of figures running a steeplechase across them, he came to a conclusion. The number of souls he asked for was less than what I had computed, but he insisted that he was right and would take no more. I paid him, and off he rushed to repeat the process with others who were bringing him the monies of different provinces to puzzle further his addled brain. When I was settled down in the train, he flew back to me, informed me that he had just discovered a new and infallible way of calculating, which, applied to my case, showed that I still owed him two souls. He was almost right this time, not quite, so I paid him the additional demand. I believe, as we now stand, he owes me two pence. It certainly must be a maddening profession, calculating fractions before a wild, jabbering, impatient crowd of half-breeds, who, by the way, are exceedingly suspicious of the clerk's arithmetic, and squabble with him fearfully on principle, for they are far too mathematically obtuse themselves to have the remotest conception of how much change they should receive. It was early in the morning of our second day's journey that we entered the province of Catamarca and traversed the Salinas. Wagon tanks of water are attached to the train while crossing these arid wastes to feed the engines and supply the rare stations. Just now, however, of water, salt, though, there was no lack. It was the rainy season in the distant Sierras, and, as often occurs, the floods had poured down and almost entirely covered these wide, flat expanses. As viewed from the train, the Salinas presented in places the appearance of a shoreless sea, for all around the horizon was a water rippling before a strong north wind. The stations, which are built on raised spots, stood out like little islands in the sea, under which the little salt waves dashed constantly. With these exceptions, nothing rose above the waters save here and there the tall, gaunt cacti, looking like ships at anchor with their yards squared. Scarlet flamingos seemed to be now the only inhabitants of this waste, for the deer and other beasts of the desert had been driven back by the waters to take refuge in the higher lands. We stayed a couple of days in old Cordoba, bade farewell to faithful Manuel, and then took train to Rosario, where we arrived on Good Friday. This day is observed with great solemnity in South America. We found that all the shops were closed, and the inhabitants were dressed in universal black. The yards on all the schooners in the river were crossed, and the roughs and gammons were letting off crackers in the streets to the peril of passers-by, burning Judas, as the custom is called. We sailed to Campana in the steamer Tridente, one of a new company, the Argentine Lloyd, 
Cold and keen seemed the wintry morning air when we reached Campana, a great change after tropical Tucuman. Buenos Aires, too, was bracing, to say the least of it, notwithstanding its bright sun. When we reached the Estación Centrale, we left our puma, who had behaved excellently during the voyage, save once when he wished to eat a white baby. In the cloakroom, for an hour or so, he was tied up with a cord to a ring and could only promenade round a circle of about three feet radius, but he somehow managed to get into plenty of mischief even within that space and run up a nice little bill for the owners during their absence. He devoured a porter shirt that was hanging within reach. Then a fellow prisoner, a foolish turkey that came too near his well-clawed paw. Then he wound himself up with his rope in an inextricable fashion so that he could not move an inch. We found him thus, lying down, tied up, blinking patiently, purring and licking his blood-covered chops. And now, leading him with a cord, we went off to the Tigre to see how our poor old falcon had got on during our absence. Our home and Peñates we found to be all right, but we heard that there had been strange doings on board while we were away. It seems that our boy Arthur had got into a row with some drunken sailors on shore. A policeman interfered, whereon the urchin knocked him down, jumped into the river, and swam on board. The assault was too serious to be overlooked, so the captain of the port sent off some of his men in a boat to arrest him. On seeing them approach, our crew dived down below, brought up a rifle, and threatened to exterminate his pursuers and bombard the port if they did not leave him alone. For many hours, he kept the whole of the Tigre, with all the naval and military forces of the Argentine Republic, at bay. The people locked themselves up in their houses, terror seized all souls, and Arthur, master of the situation, proudly strutted up and down the deck, pointed his rifle instantly at anyone who was rash enough to show his head. But, alas, the enemy by stratagem affected their purpose of taking prisoner that gallant crew. They knew that he would never surrender alive, and that his motto was that of the old French guard. So they waited till night. Under the influence of excitement and the cagna he had drunk, Arthur at last fell asleep on the deck. With muffled oars, a large body of men rowed off in boats from the Capitania. They boarded the Falcon, and before he was awake, the unconquered one was firmly fettered and carried off to a deep dungeon, where he was left to sober at his leisure, which he did with head aching and lamentations. They soon released the drunken little rascal, and the authorities of the port behaved very well in the manner, kindly looked over the offense, and laughed at it as a rather good joke. We now set to work to fit out the Falcon once more for a lengthened cruise up the tributaries of the River Plate. We found that the fresh water had stripped all the barnacles off her bottom. She was as clean and bright as a new guinea. We took most of the chain and other heavy articles out of her. By this, lightening her draught to six feet, six inches, which is quite enough for the shallow piranha and more than most of the steamers draw. This made her rather cranky, but not dangerously so. It is impossible to ascend the ever-shifting channels of the Plata without a pilot, so we made an expedition to the Boca in search of one, for all the upriver pilots are Italians and dwell in this seaport, 
which is so entirely foreign a settlement that Spanish is scarcely ever heard on its keys, gruff Genoese, rapid Neapolitan, and oily Greek being the most used and abused languages. Every cafe has its rough lithographs of Garibaldi, or Italian men of war on its walls, and quite a fleet of vessels is necessary to bring from Europe the annual supply of macaroni and fungi that are necessaries of life to these luxurious mariners from the Mediterranean and Aegean seas. In the Boca, we ordered a new boat to be built of cedar and other native woods to replace the dinghy we had lost in our collision with the steamer. We also purchased an old flat-bottomed canoe, such as the river schooners carry, for use on our cruise up the Piranha. We heard of a first-rate Genoese pilot who would come with us for a thousand dollars, six pounds a month, and therefore engaged him. Having lost Andrews, it was necessary to find some sailor to take his place. So I went down with Jardine to the beach of Buenos Aires, where the foreign sailors, the shipping masters, crimps, slop tailors, and other people whose business in life is connected with the salt water do most congregate. A wonderfully cosmopolitan loafing ground is this, beach combers of all nations, mostly sulky and down at heel. They lolled about lazily outside the grog shops and ship chandleries. Italians, Greeks, Boscos, bronze, cutthroat-looking rascals, most of them, with scarlet sashes and gold earrings. British runaway sailors, too, far the most disreputable and debased-looking of the lot. An English sailor we determined not to get, for all such as are to be picked up in these South American ports are worse than worthless, as any master of a vessel knows. If we had engaged one of these drunken shirkers of work, we should doubtless have had to throw him overboard within a few days. Through a shipping agent, we found a very decent sailor boy of seventeen, an English subject, it is true, but hardly an Englishman. He was of Malay parents and born in Mauritius, so spoke both Creole English and Creole French. On the 7th of May, our pilot, Don Juan by name, came on board. He turned out to be a great dandy. He brought an umbrella with him, an article quite unknown with us. Also, lace-covered pillows for his bed and a looking-glass. He had a gigantic trunk of clothes, his mate and bombilla, and his dispensary consisting of a roll of sulfur. I have noticed that Italian sailors invariably carry an enormous amount of bedding and luggage with them on board ship very unlike our own improvident mariners, who so often report themselves with nothing save what is on their back, even when bound for a voyage around the Horn in winter time. We were now all ready for sea, but from May the 7th to May the 12th, we were stuck hard on the mud by the Tigre bank, waiting for the waters of the river to rise. This was a time of impatience for us, we stayed on board and only on one occasion went down to Buenos Aires, for at any moment the Crescente might come and float us off. The rest of these days on the mud I passed in reading Kingsley's Westward Ho. It was some years ago when I was a boy that I read this charming work last, but I remember well how it made me yearn then for a little ship and a wandering freedom on the salt seas. And yet, now that I was in mid-fruition of that then so impossibly glorious a dream, it seemed quite an ordinary, commonplace sort of a life after all. But so it is with all our hopes and their realizations. 
I hope such philosophizing as the above are not symptoms of my becoming blasé, but it is impossible to be gushing and enthusiastic and so on when one is stuck on a mudbank for days, waiting for a high tide, with half a dozen grumbling, sulky, impatient companions round one. There is not so much of the bold, buccaneering, life-on-the-ocean-wave sort of feeling in one under these circumstances, as there should be in the skipper of a thirty-ton yawl on a roving commission for two years. End of chapter 18